Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. Now I want to start today uh, by introducing you to an atheist psychologist who's brilliant. And it's probably not the way you thought the Easter sermon would start, but it's, it's important. So uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, is a Yale-educated, distinguished scholar. And he made his break onto the popular scene in the year 2006 uh, when he wrote a, a book uh, called The Happiness Hypothesis. The Happiness Hypothesis. And in the book's more compelling moment, he actually asked his readers to consider the following question. I want you to consider it today. Uh, he said, who would you rather be? Mary or Bob? Now, yeah, see that hand in the back? Go ahead. Tyler, who's Mary? Who's Bob? Well, he builds a profile for you of both. First, he says Mary lives with her husband in a snowy buffalo. They make collectively about $40,000 a year. She's 65 years old, minority, dialysis, overweight, plain in appearance, yet she's highly sociable and very involved at her church. That's Mary. Or in other words, Mary lives in relative poverty, Mary has health issues, and Mary no doubt has been the subject of discrimination and prejudice in her life. Now who's Bob? Well, uh, he says Bob lives in sunny Southern California. He makes over six digits. Uh, He's middle-aged, white, athletic, attractive, intellectual type, and also an avid reader and lover of museums. So in summary, Bob is living the American dream. And his life can only be rivaled by some of our Instagram feeds. I mean, because he's just living it, right? He's living it. Now, uh, throw, our, throw our little summaries up there again. And I, I want you to really consider this. Be honest with yourself. Be honest. Who would you rather be? Who? For a moment, strip away like the virtue signaling and the self-righteous veneer that makes you resist being honest. And, and Okay, let's pretend that we could bring in an outside auditor because I don't actually trust you to do that or me. So let's just bring in an outside auditor. Let's pretend that they could audit how you uh, invest your money, how you spend your time, and where your thought life goes. Like what do you worry about, but also what do you hope for? Uh, what are you afraid of, but also what do you daydream about? Like time, money, thoughts, that's what makes a person, that's what reveals our true desires in life. So let's pretend we could audit that, throw it in an equation and get after what you're really after in life. What would that show us? Would it show us Mary or would it show us Bob? Now, again, if we're being honest, most of us would have to admit that we are in the pursuit of Bob. We won't be like Bob. That's what we're after in life. And yet, and yet hate throws us a curveball with his research. This is what he writes. He says, Bob seems to have it all. Few readers of this book would prefer Mary's life to his. And yet, if you had to bet on it, you should bet that Mary is, in fact, happier than Bob. Now, Haight bases his research on a variety of different factors, but there are two that emerge as most important. He says, one is Mary's religious devotion, and one B are her tight-knit relationships. And by the way, the two are connected, but that's what gives her the happiness advantage. For the record, by the way, Haight would never say that irreligious people can't be happy. 
That's, that's nonsense. He, he's an atheist psychologist, so he'd never say that. He's just pointing out here, based on the numbers, again, this is an atheist psychologist, that Mary has a happiness advantage on her more privileged counterpart because of her religious devotion and relationship. Now, not buying it. Well, fast forward from 2006 to 2016. Uh, Harvard uh, professor Tyler Vanderwild, he's in their public uh, school of health, uh, wrote an op-ed in USA Today with a journalist named Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Sinoff. The op-ed was called, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. This is how, uh, how it began. Uh, they write, uh, if one could conceive of a single elixir, like a drug, that could uh, improve physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no cost, what value would our society place on it? Going a step further, if research quite conclusively showed that when consumed just once a week, this drug would actually reduce mortality by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period, how urgently would we want to make it publicly available? Pretty urgent, right? Well, the good news, they write, is that this miracle drug, namely religion, and more specifically, regular church attendance is already in reach of most Americans. In fact, there's a good chance it's just a short drive away. Uh, They go on to show how their research bears out. Not only does going to church once a week reduce mortality rate by 20 to 30% over 15 years, but it also increases optimism, lowers rates of depression, makes you less likely to commit suicide, gives you a greater sense of purpose in life, less likely to divorce, more self-control and accountability, less loneliness, and it even makes you less likely to smoke. Now, it's to, for the record, to be clear, there are some miserable Christians out there, by the way. Just the mis- get on Christian Twitter for five minutes, and you can find the most miserable and hateful people on the planet Earth out there, and they're, they're Christians, right? So, it's, again, I, I, there's no doubt about it, but, but I'm challenging you not to let that anecdotal evidence undermine the overwhelming research, and that is that Christians have a life advantage, when they participate in their religious communities. In fact, you know what I would suggest to you? This last year's been anecdotal evidence. Because throw them statistics back up there. We've seen religious participation plummet, right? But on the flip side, we've seen all these go in the wrong direction. So here's the million dollar question then. Why is this the case? Why? What is it specifically about the Christian worldview and what it has to offer that makes it better than our secular without God worldview? Well, uh, it's not actually what you think. You see, to our culture's credit, our culture actually provides us with many ways to avoid suffering. Like our culture may be the best in the history of human civilization at literally giving us resources to buffer suffering out of our lives. You ever notice this? Like the technologies that are available even to like lower middle class today are literally incredible. Luxuries are more luxurious. Food tastes better. Life expectancies are longer. The world's been flattened and globalized in a way where you can literally acquire stuff from the other side of the world and have it next day shipped to your front doorstep. Oh, and on top of that, they figured out how to turn cauliflower into pizza. What a time to be alive. And not just pizza. They, they could turn it into buffalo wings. They could turn it into gnocchi now, pretzels, mac and cheese, praise God, even cauliflower milk, which is suspect. 
Hey, but what's my point? My point is this. If scientists can resurrect cauliflower from the dead, what can Jesus not do for you? No, I'm kidding. That's not, that's bad. I just, some, some youth pastors out there use it, but not, not, not today. No, my point is this. Health, health, wealth, and prosperity are in abundance around us. It's incredible, but are we happier? Are we happier? See, that'd be a really difficult argument to make because when I look around, I see just this tremendous burden, sense of, of angst and discontentment and disillusionment and rage in our culture today. There's a mental health epidemic happening and it's not in the developing world, it's in the developed world, in the US of A right now. You gotta ask yourself why. By the way, have you ever visited a developing country before? Some of you may have family there or, or some of you... Uh, you know, may have lived there for a time or uh, you know, went with your church on a trip or business trip, nonprofit, whatever it may be. If you go, there's two things that, that you'll come back thinking. One, you'll come back thinking, wow, I didn't know that sort of poverty existed. Poverty's great there. And everybody needs to be awoken to some of the poverty around the world. But second, you come back thinking, wow, but they're so happy. How? Well, I would suggest to you, this is where the Christian worldview and the Christian vision is different. You see, while our culture provides us with all the many resources to avoid suffering, Christianity actually provides us with the resources to overcome it. It's a more realistic vision. Let me say it a little bit different. Our culture vision uh, is to make your standard of life better. But the Christian vision is to actually prepare you for life better. And there's a difference. Now, to be clear, this is not a health, wealth, prosperity gospel message, okay? Because that's not what Christianity guarantees. It doesn't guarantee that at all. In fact, Christianity guarantees that if you do it right, there will be forms of suffering that you pursue, that you embrace. It's called self-sacrificial living, cross-shaped love. You're called to carry your cross and offer your life as a living sacrifice. If you do Christianity well, you actually will suffer, so while our culture does everything it can to buffer suffering out, Christianity is soberingly realistic. It says, one, if you wanna live a full and abundant life, there's some suffering that you must pursue. And two, there's just some suffering this side of heaven that is senseless and random and you cannot avoid. And it's coming for all of us. Doesn't matter how powerful or wealthy or affluent you are, it's coming. If COVID-19 has taught us anything, then none of us are immune, are we? You don't know when your expiration date is. You don't know if tomorrow you'll get the di uh, diagnosis or, or if you'll lose that loved one. You, 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 don't know. you don't know if the world might come crumbling down tomorrow. If COVID's taught us anything, it's that we have no idea where we'll be a year from now. Because think about where we were a year ago and where we are right now. You don't know. You don't know if the world's going to turn right or left. You don't know if you're going to end up on top of the mountain, living a dream, or, or walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Life tells us that you don't know what's coming next, but the Christian vision offers a better word, and it says, even though you don't know what's coming next, what you can know is who will be with you no matter where you find yourself next. And that man's name is Jesus. He's risen from the dead. And I'm here to proclaim to you today that his death and his resurrection offers us a living hope. And that's all you need. What's living hope, Tyler? Living hope is our hope in the future 
based on an event in the past that can quite literally change who you are in the present and has that sort of power. So the Apostle Paul actually calls this the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read to you. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, uh, Paul writes, uh, Let me now remind you of the good news, or the Greek word there is euangelion, the gospel. Right? Some of your translations will translate it as gospel rather than good news. Same thing. Uh, let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you before. It's this gospel, this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Here's the gospel. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead uh, on the third day, just as the scripture said. Uh, so according to the apostle Paul, the gospel isn't so much of a theological formula as it is a three-day set of historical events that we base our lives on, Christians. Jesus died, Jesus buried, Jesus risen from the dead. Or said in terms of Holy Week, Good Friday, Black Saturday, Resurrection Sunday. And each one of these provides us with a sort of mental, intellectual, spiritual, emotional, theological resources to get through anything life will throw at us. Good Friday reminds us that God cares. God cares. The cross may not explain to us exactly why evil and suffering exists, but it does tell us what that answer can't be. It can't be that Jesus doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. Black Saturday reminds us that God's with you. He's with you, no matter what. Because if God was willing to descend into death itself for you, where will he not go to be with you today? Jesus was buried for us. And Resurrection Sunday, it reminds us that we have a transcendent hope that no evil, no sin, no suffering in this life can ever take away from us. Why? Because Jesus is risen from the dead for us. And I tell you what, where Christianity succeeds in allowing us to thrive through suffering, our culture fails. I want to be hard on our culture for a second. It's not because I'm mean, okay? It's because I actually love the inhabitants of our culture. You, our neighbors, people who live in our city and in our country. See, okay, while our culture, or while, while Christianity offers us Jesus and literally a living hope, our culture, the cupboards bare when it comes to preparing us for suffering. Charles Taylor is a Canadian philosopher. And um, he once said, you can tell the strength of a culture's worldview based on how it prepares its people who live within it to face down suffering. And our culture doesn't prepare, prepare us at all. Dr. Paul Brand is a medical doctor who spent the majority of his career serving leprosy patients in India. Then at the end of his career, he actually came back to the United States of America and practiced medicine here for a stint. And uh, he wrote this in a book I read recently on the difference between his patients overseas and here. Uh, he said, uh, in the U.S., I encountered a society that seeks to avoid pain at all costs. Patients lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and uh, far more traumatized by it. Now, why? Why? Well, it's because in our secular culture, there is no hope. Death is the ultimate exclamation point of your life, and then it's over. And by the way, your life, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no like self worth. Or, you came from a random chance explosion, 
And one day the world's going to implode or explode and no one's going to remember anything anyone ever did. That's the story of, of, the, of our world and you without God. So what does the point of life become? The point of life becomes just maximizing the years you get. If you're lucky to get 75 years, you better maximize all the health, wealth, prosperity, and progress out of that you possibly can. Because this is it. This is it. And then it's over. Perhaps, perhaps, the secular without God worldview that's, that's the air we breathe in our culture is the biggest prosperity gospel out there. Because it tells you that's what you better be after. And suffering, suffering seen as an interruption to it. So we got to do everything we can to buffer it out. Okay, this is why COVID has been so traumatic for our culture. Because it is random, senseless suffering. And we don't know how to deal. I, I kid you not, we brought a counselor in last year to train our pastoral staff on how to pastor people through post-traumatic stress. Why? Because that's the United States of America. Yeah, okay, if, if the, and I've said this to our church a few times over the last year. So those of you who are new, though, if the last year has taught us anything, it, it's taught us that all the secular saviors that we sort of place our hope in, that, that the world looks to to save us, are frauds. They're frauds. They can't save us. And many of us turn our hopes and affections to uh, science and, uh, and technology and medicine, only to find out that it can't save us. Now, for the record, I'm so thankful for med medical and scientific advancements. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful we got the, like, the vaccine and we're coming out of this thing. And it's like it, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm thankful. But it took a year, right? And think about that. That was fast-tracked. It didn't stop hundreds of thousands from dying. It didn't stop our economy from having to shut down and all the, the mental health effects from that. It was, it was a tough year. And if history's right, then, then there will be more pandemics and more epidemics to come in the future. So we turn our affections and, and worship then to the holy trinity of wealth, success, and economic prosperity, only to see that that can't save us either. We have this cultural liturgy, if you will, where we work, 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 save, 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 spin, spin, spin. And what did COVID do? It took our work, it crashed our savings accounts, and it closed all the places we like to spend. Never in my life did I think I would see scarcity on grocery store shelves in the United States of America? Did you? And yet y'all remember a year ago, the groceries, the war zones that they were, it was insane in there. And I'm, I'm not talking about just like milk and bread being gone. Like we do that every winter in Louisville. Well, there's a 15% chance of an inch of snow, honey. We better get some milk sandwiches. Nong, nong, nong. And it's like, let's get the milk and, the and it's gone. But, but the milk and bread were gone last year and the beanie weenies, the Vienna sausages, the spam, all the stuff you, like, you kind of use in youth group to kind of gross people. It was gone. It's just gone. All of it was gone. So then we turn our affection and our worship to the holy trinity of politicians, political platforms, and political parties only to be reminded that politicians aren't saviors, political platforms aren't gospels, and political parties aren't churches. There are two uh, visions, if you will, being peddled right now at a national level in our politics. I don't know if you've noticed. It's a vision of progress and the vision of doom. 
Progress and doom, both are utilized and leveraged against us. Progress says, if you vote for me, I'll take us into that future, that utopian future. I'll take us back to the past when it was really good if you vote for me. I can do this, I can save us. That's what progress promises. On the flip side, doom promises, if you don't vote for me, they're gonna crash land the plane, so you better vote for me. And you see how they work? Progress plays on our, our deep human desire for hope by giving us heavenly ideals. Doom plays on our deep human fear by giving us hellish boogeymen. And both are used by both sides of the aisle depending on what's politically expedient. And you know why they use this rhetoric? Because they know they can't deal. They can't give us the salvation that we're looking for. Our culture can't deal, y'all. Again, reminder, our culture provides us with so many resources to buffer suffering out. And thank God for that. But Christianity and Christianity alone provides us with the resources to overcome it. It provides us with a living hope. That's what we celebrate today. What do we celebrate today? We celebrate Luke chapter 24, verse 1. This is our story of living hope. Then the men, uh, but very, there we go, verse one. But very early on Sunday morning, uh, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in. But they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there, puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. And the women were terrified. <laughs> and they bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, um, why are you looking among the dead? For someone who is alive. He is not here. He is risen from the dead. And remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. And they remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell his 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. And here we are, 2,000 years later. You know, it's interesting. Uh, there's this uh, saying, this greeting that Christians have shared, particularly on Easter for many years now. Some believe it goes back all the way to the first followers of Jesus. They were so astonished and amazed that the tomb was empty and Jesus rose from the dead that they would greet each other like this. They'd say, he's risen. Yeah, okay, and you have a few professional Christians around you because they were ready. All right, let's try this again. He's risen. Yeah, and, and indeed he is. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Uh, I have lived in, I was born in Kentucky, you know, first five, six years of my life, lived in Kentucky the last 10 years of my life. And so never in, in my, never once in my time in Kentucky have I ever heard anyone ever say the word indeed. Ever. This is not Kentucky talk, is it? So a few years ago, our staff got together and after weeks of prayer and fasting and brainstorming, we came up with a more Kentuckified version of this traditional saying. And we've been saying it here among our church for years now, and it's very near and dear to our hearts. So I'd ask you to participate in this version with us now. <clears throat> he gone. Yeah. I said he gone. Yeah. 
<laughs> For some of you, that was louder than worship. Come on. <laughs> That's right, he gone. Uh, for some of y'all, that came too naturally. I'm just going to say that, you know. Now, look, as, as tr- trivial and funny as that is, though, in that simple phrase is all you need to overcome all the pain and suffering of this life. And when I say overcome, I do mean overcome. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. First four verses, Paul tells us what the gospel is, right? Then after that, you have to go read this chapter this week. This is a great Easter chapter. Just go study 1 Corinthians 15. Because after that, Paul gives us the most dense and thoughtful exposition of resurrection in all of the Bible. He tells us the implications of resurrection if it's true and if it's not true. He tells us uh, what our bodies will be like spiritually and physically one day when they are resurrected. Fascinating passage. But what I find most fascinating about it is the very last verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I wanna read it to you now. Before I I read it, I'm gonna read verses 54 and 57 to you because it sums up the whole chapter. And then I'm gonna get to verse 58 because this is is a power power verse for us this Easter. Uh, Starting in verse 54, Paul writes, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 15 for you. Beautiful sentiment, right? Then we get to verse 58 though. And Paul writes, to close the chapter out, he writes, so, or because of that, so my dear brothers and sisters, so be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Now, do you see what Paul's getting at here? Paul says, Paul says, Jesus is risen from the dead. Death is defeated. So, because of that, there ain't much you can do about evil and sin this side of heaven. So just go on home, you know, lock the doors, close the blinds, get in your bomb shelters, hang out, and let's just wait this thing out. In fact, build walls, form tribes, don't hang out with any sinners or get too close to any sin because that's not where you want to be when Jesus comes back and come Lord Jesus. He'll be here soon. No, that's not what he says, y'all. No, he says, Jesus is risen from the dead. Death is defeated. So it turns out we have a living hope after all. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Now, always work enthusiastically. Now, for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for him is ever gonna be in vain. So get to work. You got a job to do. As Christians, we actually believe in heaven in three stages, according to scripture. There are three stages. Did you know this? There's three, okay, I'm gonna teach you something here. There's three sta- if you're interested at all in this, by the way, we're gonna go into further detail over the next three weeks, so come back for some resurrection theology. But, but I'll give you the three stages today. Stage two is the one that's most familiar to us. It's the belief that when we die, our physical bodies are laid in the ground, and in this sort of disembodied state, we go to be with Jesus in what scripture describes as a restful paradise. Until, stage three, one day when Jesus comes back and the dead are resurrected, the living are resurrected, the entire created cosmos is resurrected, made qualitatively new. Revelation 21, there'll be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. All things will be made new. And then we live in eternal glory in the full presence of God in full love with one another. It's going to be an awesome day. Stage three. 
But yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, what about stage one, though? Never heard of this stage. Well, you can probably see where I'm going with this already, don't you? Stage one is now. It's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. It's as above, so below. It is, we are going to live forever, but forever starts today. It's graveyards into gardens, caverns of death into empty tombs. This is our calling as Christians. Again, if COVID's taught us anything, it's that we can't avoid suffering, but we can resurrect it. And we've done that here at the Loveville Church. If you've been with us last year, uh, you've seen us turn an empty auditorium into an answer for food insecurity. As we ran through this place, over 200,000 unique items that went back out into the community. We turned a small business on the verge of uh, closing into a party for frontline workers. Uh, Literally, the pizza shop across the street was going to close last year because March Madness got canceled, and that's one of the big months for them. Then we called him up and we're like, hey, we need a thousand pizzas for healthcare workers. You think you can do that? And he's like, you are an answer to prayer. All my high schoolers, all the high schoolers, you're working today, right? And like they, for the next few days, they just provided us with pizzas and we were able to help a business out and, and appreciate healthcare workers. We turned racial unrest in our city into a moment of prayer, justice, and unity. We turned a catastrophe for former inmates into an opportunity for legislative justice. Alongside prisoner's hope, we saw three laws changed. We turned a season of depression and exhaustion for teachers into a wave of appreciation and encouragement. We turned church on a screen into unlikely baptisms. We even turned an economic depression into the biggest Christmas Eve offering we've ever seen. For those of you who are new here, we have this rhythm at our church where on Christmas, to celebrate the generosity of Jesus, we collect a big offering. 100% of it goes back out into the community and to outreach the next year. It goes into our outreach ministries, our partners here in, here, in, here in the city and across the world. And I thought that this Christmas was going to be a low one because of COVID, right? But we set a record. This past Christmas, we collected $1.6 million dollars. My favorite thing about that, yeah, praise God, man. Praise God. My favorite thing about that is every Easter, we come back in order to celebrate that the tomb is empty and we take a big chunk of it and just give it away. We just give it away. We are new creations. Jesus is risen from the dead. Let's show the world what that's all about. So this Easter, we're giving away a quarter million dollars to three of our favorite partners. One is World Impact. They believe that the urban poor should be raised up and empowered to start ministries and nonprofits and churches among the urban poor. In the urban poor, this organization sees all the gifts, all the wisdom, all the talent, courage, and know-how that they need in order to love their neighbors well and show them the gospel. And so they raise them up and they empower them to do just that. It's an inside-out approach rather than sending outside in, right? And I love it. I love what they do. Never Thirst is a, a global partner that we have that takes clean water to the developing world where there is none and also offers them the living water of Jesus. And then, of course, there's High Point Ministries that serves uh, Oldham, Henry, Trimble County, and the poor there. Many of you guys live out there, and so uh, we're so proud to partner with them this year. That's what resurrection is about. That's what this church is about. So look, I'll close by saying this today. You you know what I've, I've noticed this year in particular? I've noticed that as you age, Easter, Holy Week just hits you different. When you're young, you so appreciate the cross, right? Like, because like when you're moving through your 20s, 
and, and it's about 30, before you get there, you make some of the stupidest decisions of your life, like very regrettable, like the most regrettable, like the ones where you're like, how did I live through that? The only way I'm getting in, the only way I will be saved is by the mercy and grace of Jesus, so you just sort of cling to the cross, right? But then as you, you get older, it's not that the cross gets less important, it's that the resurrection just begins to magnify itself. Because you begin to face your own mortality. Some of the big milestones of life start passing you by and all of a sudden they're in the rear view. And you start thinking to yourself, never again. This sense of never again will I experience that sort of hangs over your life. I was watching my six-year-old and three-year-old play in the TV room the other day and I thought to myself, man, what I wouldn't give to be six again without a care in the world just playing with my sister. Never again, though. Those days aren't behind me. Oh, and then it hit me. Holy cow, I got a six-year-old. My oldest son's six. I can remember, I remember a whole Palmer, a little baby boy in the, in the hospital. And I thought to myself, never again. Never again will I hold my Palmer like that. Some of you are a little further along in the parent journey, and so you know some of these other never-agains. You've experienced it. Eventually, eventually, they fly the nest. you got an empty house, and you think to yourself, never again. Never again will my home be the hustling, bustling place where there's life and youth and noise. <laughs> and people joke about, well, finally I got them off the payroll, right? But really, you're like, never again. Then your body starts to fail you. Like you like twist your ankle just walking into church, right? Or, just, or you, you sneeze wrong and you have a neck injury for a week. You're like, oh, so what's, what's going on? I need someone to lay hands on this. You know, like, Never again. Never again will your body be the physical specimen it once was. Then you get to the end of your career. And they stop talking to you about promotions. And they start talking to you about transition planning. And you think, never again will I be the ace around my company and then you get to the end of your life and and you begin to notice that everybody's gone your grandparents are gone your parents are gone your friends or your loved ones they're, they're passing away around you I had one elderly saint at my last church say to me Tyler I got more friends in heaven now than I do on earth and there's just sort of irreversible sense that never again will I have them. Like with every year that we age, it's like dying a little death in the midst of life because you think never again will I have that community. Never again will I have that fun. Never again will I have those people. Never again will I have that experience. Never again. Now, if that's you today, though, man, do I have the good news for you. Because you know what the resurrection promises us? You know what it teaches us? It says no to never again. The resurrection promises no matter how old or young you are, your best days are still ahead of you. And it promises us no matter how good or bad life is, you still have a job to do that matters. If you ain't dead, you ain't done. Because my dear brothers and sisters, we are to be strong and immovable. 
We are to work enthusiastically for the Lord, and we are to know that nothing we do now for the Lord is in vain or ever useless. Every, every suffering that you endure well for Jesus will be redeemed someday, and every act of love and compassion that you do for Jesus will live on into eternity. That's the hope we have, and praise God for it. And hold on to it today. Say, look, the storms come through, right? It's wreaked havoc. People are starting to come out of their bomb shelters now, though. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And they're beginning to look around and survey the landscape to see what they'll find. Where they expect to find tears, church, let's give them songs and prayers. Where they expect to find darkness, church, let's give them light. Where they expect to find graveyards, let's give them gardens. Caverns of death, let's give them empty tombs. Where they expect to find hell on earth, let's give them heaven on earth because that's our calling that's the power we have in us and you know why because he is risen he is risen one more time like it's actually Easter Sunday he gone and indeed he is will you stand with me right now stand with me and together I want to pray this congregational prayer that sums up our resurrection hope really well just read this aloud with me church All the saints pray together. We believe in life after death. We believe in life after life after death. We believe in life before death. He is risen. We are risen. He is coming. We will rise. He gave his life. We give our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we celebrate right now. Amen. Let's celebrate.